Welcome to the Play-Based Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen R.B. Peterson, and maybe your new teacher bestie that is here to hype you up, maybe give you a motivating kick in the pants, and teach you all I know about play and childhood. I am here to help you challenge old and outdated practices and inspire you to create a truly developmentally appropriate early childhood environment that fosters creativity, curiosity, and joy in the children that you care for. Let's set the stage for a lifelong love of learning. Let's get going. Jerrica and Jules are with me for the Play-Based Learning Podcast. They are from The Connected Child. Welcome, Jerrica and Jules. I'm so glad you're here. Tell us about you. Tell us why you're here. Tell us what we're going to be talking about. Sure. Yeah, I'm Jerrica. I'm Jules. Um, We're really excited to be on the podcast. We um, formed The Connected Child together. We met as co-teachers. We have been teaching pre-K and we just were very passionate about children and parents and connecting each other. Mm-hmm. And we realized we could do things in the classroom, but what else could we do outside of the classroom? And so we wanted to put everything out there and just really help families in whatever ways they needed to. Yeah. Yeah. Our- we really feel like connection is like the special sauce I guess that's like it connects children to every caregiver it connects children to their friends and a lot of times people don't realize what they could be doing intentionally and that their that parent-child connection is always there underscoring everything but there's ways that people could be nurturing it and nourishing it because I think also like I know how I feel when I connect with kids. Like mm-hmm. it's my favorite thing. Yeah. And I know that parents are like, like they just love me and they're like, how do you do this? And I want to show them how they can also have that same connection and have the same looks from their kids that they see them looking at me. Yeah. And it's about having that back and forth relationship where everybody's benefiting because we're connecting more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's authentic. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I like to do a little bit of defining so that like everybody's on the same page with what we're talking about. So would one of you define authentic connection for me? Yeah. I mean, can we role play it? Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. There's the barrier to authenticity is the performance. And when adults talk to children in a way where the only answer to their question is yes, like, oh, are you wearing a pink sweater? (laughs) Wow, that's (laughs) so cool. And the child is just looking at them like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, and a lot of times adults are thinking they're meeting their child on their level but that's really not how children communicate so it's actually on the adults level instead and I think that that's where like the inauthentic miscommunications happen is being on the different levels I mean I think for me when I think of authenticity Mm -hmm. especially in terms of a relationship with an adult and a child I always want to talk to the child the same way I would talk to anybody else Yes. Because we are the same. Yes. I would talk to them a little bit differently because of the different ages in the relationship, but I'm never going to talk down to them. I'm going to be genuine with them and 
like they are just an equal with me. It's just a relationship together. So that's what, that's how I define authenticity. You talk to them like they're real people. Okay. So talk to me more about the level. We have the adult level and the child level. How do we know what the, the authentic level is and where we should, where can we, where, what level can we meet on? Like, how do we find that? Yeah, it's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, I always get down on their level, meaning I nail down to them, or I'm at least making sure that I'm never like stooping over them. Yeah, and I'm making sure that I'm eye to eye with them because that's what we try to teach with kids is eye contact. For those who can make eye contact, not everybody does, but that we are engaged in having a conversation. That's part of it. That's how we yeah. learn to go back and forth and reciprocate from each other. Um, it's just, and it's letting them have moments to respond, asking a question and then waiting a second and letting them speak and then say, oh, yeah, I like how you're saying that and repeating it back and making sure that you understand and you're letting them know that you value yeah. the information that they've given you. Yeah. And having it be in real time, yes. like when she's saying pausing for that response I feel like a lot of people think that they're going to have to run the conversation because they're the adult or that they have to rehearse the response next and like not make it awkward with like dead space. But there's so much silent connection that can happen too. And children are just processing at a different rate. And so a pause in a conversation for adults might feel awkward, but for a child, they're thinking of what they actually want to say and just being in their timeline, in their pace with them, you're down on their level, like you said, not hovering over with that imposing body language and just letting it happen and unfold naturally. Well, and it's specifically in play, yeah. particularly, if things are happening in the classroom or even with other kids around them, you're talking to them, they might get distracted while this is happening over there. Or maybe they're thinking about their answer while also watching over here. And so you have to give them that processing time to be like, okay, you might have to even ask them again and having that patience where you're like, were you able to figure that out? Or what did you decide? Do you need me to repeat this? It's about going at the child's pace. Mm -hmm. It's not the adult's pace. Mm -hmm. It's the child's pace. And it's always having that awareness that when we're talking together I can be patient because I am the adult so what do I need to do to meet them mm -hmm. and listen to them and you're fully plugged in regardless okay. of what is happening you're fully plugged in to them yeah. and you're just being curious and letting it unfold with no plan yeah okay so there's so many, there's so many layers to this that I want to dig into. So the there's the layer that like, we're speaking about this because we have been in play-based preschool classrooms and we know that connection and relationships is like the foundation of learning and getting to know those children so that we can provide those opportunities for whole child development and developmentally appropriate practice and all of those things. So, um, like we're experts at this in play. 
However, the next layer I think to this is there's a lot of people probably listening, maybe who are making that shift, who haven't really gone from complete like release of like traditional teaching methods and maybe are still in that. And I think in the, in those environments, it is a lot harder to connect with children because you have so many things you got to get done. You got to get from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And that's one of the beautiful things about play and why we're advocates for play is because it allows the time to develop those relationships in the classroom with like out having to race from thing to thing to thing. So this leads to like the layer of how do we translate that to home? And I really feel like it's really difficult. It can be as, and maybe you have some tips for this, but a lot of families in that I know of that have children, their children are in many different activities outside of school. So there's a lot of running once they leave preschool yeah. or childcare or school. And there's not, it, it, it leads into that. Like, we don't have time for this. Like we got to go, 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 go. So with all of those layers, what are your thoughts? Like how, what are some tips that you have? So like, say you have a teacher who has a very, they're, they're in a traditional space. They believe in play and they know that play is how children learn. And they want that time for that connection, but are having trouble finding it. What are your tips for them first? And then we'll move into like the overscheduled child outside of school. I think it's this, it's a lot of the same of whether it's overscheduled or whether there's like, you know, procedures that have to be done in the traditional school setting. It's making the most of the small moments, the prime times where you don't have to throw a party. You don't have to make a bunch of prepared things. You can just have the smallest of moments be the most impactful It can happen when you're helping a child change their clothes. It can happen when you're walking down the hall together. It can happen when you're sitting and eating food. It can be anything. It can be across the room. Like Jerrica always has these little moments across the room with students that I love and I've started to do myself where you'll just kind of be like surveying the room, looking around, checking everything's going well without having to disrupt the play. And sometimes in that gaze, we make eye contact with a child and they're kind of looking at us thinking, why are you looking at me? And (laughs) we're looking at them. And, And even something as small as just giving them like a little wave or like being like making a silly face or giving a little thumbs up their whole demeanor and body language it's it's honestly insane how much it means to them well i was gonna say there are two favorite moments of the day for the kids and for me the first one is when we greet them in the morning when they come in the classroom Mm -hmm. it's the tiniest thing Mm -hmm. they walk in i give them a choice of whatever they want and no matter what choice i give them Mm -hmm almost every single one of them gives me a hug every single day. The other time is right before rest time starts, I go around to every single child and I say, thank you for laying down. I hope you have a good rest. And I say, I love you. 
Mm. and I will always keep you safe. And I do Mm. like, it's just because I want them to know, like it's, Mm. it's that tiny moment of connection, Mm. but they're like, she's taking the time because she loves me. Like, I know she genuinely cares about me. And that's like what you're saying. It can be these tiny things, Mm -hmm. but that's what they look forward to. Like there was a time when we stopped our greetings for a little bit because we were just having some issues at the school and the kids would get there and they'd be like, yeah, what's happening? And we're like, we can't (laughs) stop it. We can't, (laughs) you know, because it was important to them. It was more important than the other the things that we had to do that we were being told we had to do. You're like, no, yeah. this is what we need to do because this yeah. is what is making yeah the moments matter. Yeah. Another thing that was like born out of, it was born out of lack of resources and time in the classroom. When we have lunch and there's a million mm-hmm. things going on and there's, you know, water pitchers to fill, we're out of forks, this person's spilling, like they, people are needing help. I can't open my container it's a lot going on and I would have to get things ready while the students are also being autonomous. And so it's kind of like a time when things can bubble over. And so to buy myself more time to have them engaged, but me being able to run around and help, I started saying, Oh, will you tell us what you're eating today? And then everybody got to go around and talk about it. And I basically did it as like a way to fill the time to hold their engagement while things are kind of in flux, but I didn't have to be sitting down and like reading to them or, and being, you know, on stage. And now they live for it. Like if I don't initiate that, they say, hang on, we can't start eating yet because we, can we talk about our lunches? And they're so brilliant. And like, they're excited to tell their friends. It's a way for them to build connection. I have carrots too that kind of thing like and it's so simple and it came out of like me being flustered and needing more like time yeah and they live for it. and it's like they they glom onto these things that we think are just so like intangible that is yeah. impactful for them yeah. oh my gosh that's brilliant I've never really thought of doing that in the program that I founded the children do bring their own lunch from home every day and so that's yeah. such a great idea just right. to like manage them to like just keep yeah. an eye on yeah yeah like they they oh, sort themselves out during that time and it's great and they're practicing their public speaking we're learning about their home culture they're yeah. showing that they know what's going in their body for like you know learning about their health yeah like one week we were talking about like different colors of foods that you eat and how they so they were like I have orange I have purple I have green and so we were like yeah that's what we were reading about so it's connect uh, connecting yeah things that we're doing every day yeah oh my goodness um one thing that I've noticed as a parent of four children that are above you know like between the ages of nine and 18 is that um our stupid little computers that we that hang out in our pockets all of the time I think that is a huge distractor for parents and for children. Like I've, I've even noticed it's, it's just, it's like a horrible addiction when you like don't have anything to do, or you're just sitting down for a minute to put your shoes on. Like I've noticed my nine-year-old get out his little phone and like start YouTube shorts while he's putting his shoes on. (laughs) And it's like, 
No, like we just, let's just like talk through our morning and let's, and that's something that I know I need to be better as a parent is like making sure that I'm having those conversations with my children so that they notice, like, look at what you're doing. This isn't a normal human behavior. shouldn't be anyways. And we need to like, make sure we're like noticing when we're doing that to distract ourselves and like, just like set it down. So, um, Okay. So that, that there brings up the, the conversation of boundaries. So let's talk about what boundaries mean to you. And then we'll talk about it in a school setting and at a home setting. We were just talking about that earlier where we were thinking about what boundaries are not. And (laughs) that's helpful to define it. Yeah. Yeah. I found it so helpful to say what something isn't in order to get to what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's not written in stone. It's not punitive. Mm-hmm. It's not emotional. Yeah. A boundary is an expectation and a promise to follow through, regardless of what that is. And that's honestly why we feel so passionate about boundaries being a way to alleviate anxiety in children. Because a lot of quote-unquote behaviors are stress responses from Mm -hmm. children. And most adults prefer when they know what to expect. Yeah. And children are no different. And so if a child is feeling stressed or anxious, and then you can tell them what to expect, even if it's not the most exciting thing in the world, it's not getting ice cream, it's not going to Disneyland, it's just, hey... In five minutes, we're going to get in the car and go home. That is so inherently comforting, even if the child doesn't want to leave the park, even yeah. if it's you know not great news to them, knowing what to expect is so linked to trust. Yeah. And that's like our view on why boundaries are more important for the connection, and not I, just discipline. And I think for me, when I think of boundaries and kids, I see a boundary as a pathway. Mm-hmm. It's helping a child know where to go next. What can I do? What can I not do? What's expected of me? If you don't have any boundaries or expectations, that makes the pathway humongous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then they're going to try all these different avenues and they're like, I don't know where to go. Yeah. And I think sometimes with parents and even with educators and teachers, if you don't have those clear expectations, kids are going to keep doing things because they don't understand what you want from them or what can I do about this? And so I think you find with teachers who are able to set clear, um, concrete boundaries, their relationships improve with kids because the kids are like, Oh, I know exactly what so-and-so expects. And so, yeah, I can do this. And you can have better conversations because you're like, remember, this is the conversation we had about this tell me why this isn't working for you because it's it's just a clearer pathway, a clearer way to guide children through things. And Mm -hmm. like you said, boundaries can be flexible, Mm -hmm. but you both have to be aware of where the line is. Yeah. And you can't keep changing the line. Yeah. You can have a reasonable discussion and then decide, or you can say, I understand that this situation is different because of these reasons, but the, the trap, to avoid falling into is the five more minutes, five more minutes, just this once. And, and that 
is honestly very scary to children. And I think that parents feel like they're being like the fun parent or doing something nice for their child, but it is really stressful in the brain. Even if the child is excited to have five more minutes, yeah, they're feeling that uncertainty and they are no longer able to count on that adult. If they can predict the responses every time from a, an adult in their life, that codes that adult as safe to them. And so really setting boundaries are an act of compassion. And we talk a lot about it with our parent clients as unwavering compassion. Like you are not changing. And sometimes I'll say, I hear that you're crying. I know that you're sad. It won't change the result. Mm. We are still going to blank. And I'll sit with them in the emotion. And not every child is emotional when faced with a boundary, but we can still be compassionate Mm -hmm. without changing the outcome. And so you're unwavering in that compassion. Okay. So uh, let's chat a little bit about control versus boundaries. So a lot of the adults, many adults that I've met in my life and people who are in roles that work with children, um, we fall into this control trap and we don't even realize we're doing it. We don't. And I was that way. And that is very much how our traditional classroom is set up, how traditional schools are set up. Um, we, and a lot of families are set up that way too. Like it it is because I said so, because I'm the adult and you're the child. And it's just a very like top down, you have to do it because I'm, I told you, you have to, I'm, that's it. So how do we differentiate between control and like healthy boundaries and how do we, so if you are the type of person who is trying to release a lot of the control that's unnecessary, how do we um, like blend that over into like healthy boundaries? Does that make sense? Okay. I think a lot of times, like you were saying, control is there because a lot of times there's this like underlying anxiety level almost. That's like, I know that I need to be putting a boundary in place. I don't know how someone's going to respond to it. So the more I can feel in control by putting something into place, it's sure to work out. And then it doesn't, and you're like, okay, well, what else can I do? We have worked with a teacher who experienced severe anxiety and it became really clear in their tone and the way they were trying to manage their classroom. They only wanted control. Like their reasoning was out the window their emotional check-ins I was like you you don't realize what this looks like Mm -hmm. I was like I can tell that this is making you feel this way but this is what it's coming off to the kids as you are kind of just making sure every single thing they're doing is control like they were doing some potty training and they were making the kids go to the bathroom every 30 minutes regardless if they had to or not and I was just like this has to stop. And so I was like, this is about control. Mm -hmm. You have to give kids space and time and you have to be listening to them. And so when you find yourself feeling extremely frustrated or angry that this boundary is not working, you might be stepping into more of the control role versus just putting a boundary on. 
or if they're if the kids are constantly having meltdowns not mm. tantrums because tantrums are more kids who want control they don't like the answers or they don't they can't handle what's going on meltdowns are when kids are really overwhelmed mm. mentally and physically and so you have to kind of help them get through moments I think you're absolutely right like the the control level when it rises like that boundaries are for children and that control like boundaries benefit children but that control level only benefits adults because mm-hmm. I think that people use it. I think adults use that those extra firm and minutia level control practices to self-soothe when they are overwhelmed. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. no longer about the child. And the child you- could be doing the same thing every day. And however, the adult is walking in with their emotional state, they view it as this is out of control one day. And then the next day they're like, yeah, I feel like playing and it's fine for them. But the child has actually remained the same. And And it's our job to be consistent, not the child's. And I think it often starts in small amounts. Yeah. And then as the kids are like, okay, well, I understand what to do in this situation. Another situation becomes uncontrolled and so then it just keeps getting more control and more control and it gets bigger and bigger that's when you get into these kind of situations where all of a sudden it's like no we need to do something because everyone is now not feeling good or safe or whatever about the situation and that's too I think a parent could then feel like they have this parent guilt about it because they don't even like it but it's like what how do we go back from this though yeah like I don't I don't know how to release this but also make sure that the kids are doing what they're supposed to that we're able to get out of the door in the morning you know or like bedtime like bedtime yes. is also hard because everybody's tired at the end of the and, day. and kids know yes this is my moment yes. where the adult wants something that I have <laughs> yeah oh my goodness okay so when give me some examples of what some good what setting boundaries looks like in like a play-based child-centered program yeah sure um so in our classroom we have a bunch of different centers and we have um a certain number of kids that can play in there at a time it's mainly for a safety rule yeah and so that everyone gets a fair share yes and um, the reason, like I said, it's a safety rule. There are times if we see kids, there are more than that many kids there, it's okay. But if we see it starting to become unsafe, then we have to talk about it. So we have a conversation. So it is a boundary, but it's flexible as long as we see everything is going okay. And when we talk about it, we're like, this is why we have this because sometimes it gets to... There's not enough space. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it can be accidentally injuring each other just when they're reaching but yeah I'm just gonna just because I'm like uh I'm I'm really like a play-based like advocate here so I'm just gonna push back on this just a little bit and say what would happen if you allowed the children to figure out how much space is not enough for them instead of placing that boundary on them out the gate because there's it's it maybe seems like there is a little control there and letting them figure out, hey, I'm not comfortable here. And then using that as a moment to like talk through something like, yeah, 
it seems like there's a lot of kids here. So like, what do you think we could do? And then involving them in it. So I don't like, that's just my outsider looking in. I'm not in your classroom, so I don't know, but just, I know that like in this, in the classroom that I had, we never place limits on who can be where and how many children at a time, because we use that as a learning opportunity. Like it might not feel good to have 17 people around the sensory table. So how can we work through this? Hey, you want to turn when they're done? Maybe come back later. Um, so, okay. So for, I definitely feel like for safety reasons in that, like, okay, say you have a loft and the weight limit is a certain amount of weight limit, then yes, absolutely. I feel like that's a safety issue. But like, as far as like, maybe we could just, how could you set a boundary on that without saying, oh, only four people here at a time because there might not be enough space? So um, I can tell you a little bit more about why we decided to do that. When I came to the center that I'm at, the teachers were not monitoring any of the kids. And so they were just running around everywhere and throwing everything. And so we tried to be a little bit, bring a little bit more structure to it. But I think you're right. It is very good to have the kids help you solve the problems. Mm -hmm. That's why when there are more kids, we have them talk to each other to figure out how to take turns. But mm -hmm. I think because again, taking turns is another thing that can be worked Absolutely. out with them. Yeah. But I think you do hit on a really important thing where kids should be um, included mm -hmm. in solving the problems because that is the best way that they're going to learn how to work together and how to mm -hmm. solve problems. And when they all understand that you can increase the boundary, you yes. can make it different. That's how you grow. Yeah. Okay. It should be responsive to their level. And like when we started in this classroom, we have children who are not quite three coming in all the way to almost six. And so their abilities to advocate for themselves yeah. are at a huge disparity. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's been kind of like threading the needle for us to make sure that we are putting things in place that support the skill level for self-advocacy and communication for the younger students Absolutely. so that it's not just tyranny from yeah. the older students. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's really important to front load those skills and make that the focus instead of just being like, well, it's easier for us teachers to say that, you know, no more than five people here, as opposed to being like, okay, teaching them the skills to have communication, self-advocacy, a Socratic method of deciding what's going to happen. Those are the skills that need to be raised so that we can take away that external boundary. Absolutely. I like that. Okay. I, so I can give you an example though about a bound, like, but yeah. really I was like thinking about this. So again, our, our playground is not great. And so we started and we kept being told the kids can't go up the slides. Yeah. The kids can't climb around the sides of it. They can't do this. They can't do this. And so they we, can't jump off. We pushed back against the boundaries and we were like, this is what we're going to do. That's just yeah. what we're going to do because our kids need that. And so when we were talking to the kids about it, we, that's when we really did set some of those like safety boundaries. And we were like, yes, you can go up the slide, but maybe we can't jump off the top of it because it's so tall. And so, or there's a metal thing. There. I think yeah. setting boundaries, it's like, what is going to be again, safety. Yeah. 
that's probably the yeah. biggest reason to set a boundary. And yeah. then adults should always be asking themselves, why not? Like, if you're saying no to something, why? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So this brings up another thought in my head. So as you were talking about the boundaries that are set upon you and your classroom and what you can and can't do, how does that feel? You ask a really interesting question at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess we can say this now. We are actually quitting our jobs. Yeah. Um, because there have been too many boundaries placed on us. Benign control. Yes. Um, so that's really hard. But when you when you have those boundaries placed on you, that's when you need to take action. Mm -hmm. Because it's just, I mean. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's about what's best for the kids. Yeah. And I, there's a really good quote that I like that's what's best for children isn't always convenient for adults. Mm -hmm. And that can be true about like, oh, I don't really want to get the glue out because then I'll have to clean it. But it's, it's not convenient for me. That's my job. It's not supposed yeah. to be about my convenience. And that's kind of taken on to the next level here where we're like, we are now realizing that we are in a place that is not supportive for children. And so it's not convenient for us to quit our jobs, but in this bizarre situation, it ended up being what's best for the kids yeah. because of our values, not aligning with the institution that we're at and ethically we had to make the really hard decision to say we can't be part of this anymore mm. and it's so sad to like yeah rupture those relationships and how do you even sit down with a child and tell them why like that's right. not even something they can like grasp but trying to put it in language for them was really hard but I think that children know when someone is being genuine. And like you said, authentic. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And we've had so much trust with our students that that, I think there's a level of understanding that's kind of beyond what we can talk about with yeah. them. And it's because of the relationships we've built. But yeah, like our values, and I think most educators are very, very guided by their values. And in this industry, it's really hard and your morals and your values will be tested mm. and choosing the good of the children every time can be really hard, but it will never eventually steer you wrong. Yeah. Mm. Cause that's something that we, I, we both hold really close to ourselves is just children are first always. And they deserve respect. And, and even that's a good thing to keep in mind with a boundary. Is it serving the needs of the child? Yes. I mean, everybody has needs. Adults have needs too. But your decisions need to have children in them. Exactly. If not, who is or, it? Or, or just admit it. Like if you're saying to your child, it's okay to say to your child, yes. hey, I need five minutes of alone time. Be honest with your child about your own needs instead of like packaging it as like, you are too loud. You okay, need, this yeah. time. it's like, I need this time and it has nothing to do with them. And it's like, okay, perfect. Hmm. Um, okay. Back. So I want to just like back up just a little bit. And this is a thought that's rolling through my head. 
So how do you, okay. How as a teacher, so like, so as adults who's working, you were working in a workplace and those boundaries did not feel good. Mm-hmm. They felt controlling. They felt like it was, it was just there because somebody said so. So with that, how can a teacher or a caregiver or a parent know if their boundaries are stupid, yeah. <laughs> too controlling, too whatever, um, with their own children or the children in their class? Because children can probably, I'm assuming, feel the same way as an adult. Like, this is a dumb boundary. This is a dumb rule. I don't want to, I don't want to do this rule. So I'm just going to do something else because like as an adult, that's what I do. I just do whatever that, whatever I want, because I mean, I don't, I don't like bowing down to somebody who's telling me what to do ever. So, um, how, how do we know at what point when we're like to the boundary is turning to control and not serving the child in the best way? I think there's a couple different ways to think about it. You can think about whether it's your need or the child's need. And I really think that all teachers should have mentors because yeah. it's someone who knows the industry and someone who's not in your brain. And those two things are very important. They need to understand where you're coming from, but not be party to the same personal biases that we all have. And so if you can sit down with, a mentor or another person who's in a similar situation to you and go through and have them gently question you and be like, okay, what if you didn't do this? What would happen? And just go down like the why chain. And frequently with that self-reflection, teachers start to notice that they're, well, because this is a what if 1% chance happening situation, or it's because of one particular child might do this one particular thing. And then it's like, okay, but we're still hindering 20 other children. If it's for one child, it should not be a whole class rule. And so just kind of going down and like, it's painful. Self-work and self-reflection is not always a picnic, Mm -hmm. but it's necessary. And it's part of the hard work and like, the unofficial teacher's oath that we all have. Well, I think what makes it challenging for parents is because they're not around all the teachers, right? Yes. A lot of times I have to remember myself, I'm with kids all day long. So I see behaviors and I'm like, I've seen it a lot. So, but for parents, it's like, is this how a kid normally is? I have no idea. And so it rocks their world. And we're like, keep it in mind. And so I, I see what you're saying about boundaries. Like sometimes it would be hard to know, like, is this, too controlling or not and I think what what I try to look for is it a repetitive response to something is the child getting emotional every time this happens are they becoming anxious what's happening and then kind of diving into more why do they just not like it or is it not clear enough or Mm -hmm. is this are they not actually able to meet this expectation are they do they not have the The skills. skills to actually do this Or do I, or maybe do I not have the skills to know how to communicate to this, to this, to them? Mm -hmm. It's about trying to see past that first blockade of the boundary problem and just trying to see, okay, maybe we need to approach it differently. Just like we have different learners, right? Maybe we have different 
rephrasing of how the boundary works. Maybe they're like, well, you said that I can never touch that. You're like, well, I didn't say you can never touch it. I said, be careful with it. That's them clarifying, which shows us that it hasn't been clear enough. If they feel the need to test with their actions or feel the need to negotiate, when a lot of parents like, I hate that my child's negotiating, they're clarifying. Or they might be verbally testing. Older kids do Mm -hmm. that. But it's just, it's just so important to take it from one step at a time and really being diligent and honest with yourself. And it has to be not emotional. Like if you are having that conversation with yourself or with a mentor and you feel like your own hackle response go up when they're questioning it. It has to be not emotional when you're interacting with the kids. It has to be not emotional. I'm not a strict teacher when I'm angry and a relaxed teacher when I'm happy. My emotions cannot be part of it because that is not healthy for yeah. the kids. It's not fair. Absolutely. And it's like, it's not that you're not emotional, but you have this like calm confidence yeah. where you're just like, I'm here. Let's do it. Yeah. It's going to stay the same. Like it's, yeah. it's just you're having just... that power, not power is not a good word in this conversation, but you're having <laughs> that presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That autonomy. Yeah. Um, what are some, okay. So for anybody who's wanting to learn more about these, just all of these things that we've been chatting about, what are some of your favorite resources that you have come across? Any books you've read, any podcasts, any people who talk more about this? Like what, who inspires you and who has inspired you in this realm? Um, for me, I love Mona Delahook and all of her books about behavior. My favorite book is Beyond Behavior. It's brain mm-hmm. science and compassionate um, caring for kids. Like when she it actually changed how I viewed all behavior with kids because it's a stress response in the brain. Like, I just love her so much. And all that she says, I'm just like, this is it. This, this is what everybody needs to know. We need to stop looking at behaviors as kids just being bad or making bad choices or being naughty. Like we need to know why this is happening, why this happens in classrooms, why this happens at home. If we can look at it as a way, how can we help manage this? It's going to help so much. And she talks a lot about co-regulation and how that's how it starts. Mm -hmm. It starts with relationships. Um, We also, we love Janet Lansbury. Mm -hmm. She is the, the way I always tell teachers that I mentor and parents, the way that she speaks to children Mm -hmm. and explains speaking to children, she has such an ease with it but it's also respectful and it's authentic. Yes. But too, it's like the, it doesn't make the parent feel like they have to be weak. It's like, you can be confident and also have this conversation of back and forth. Mm -hmm. Like you are the boss as a parent, you make the decisions, but that doesn't mean that you're like an unpleasant tyrant or unreasonable Yeah. And I think that it's a really universal experience that like parents often feel like they're really isolated in that. They're like, my child is the only child who makes this so difficult. And like, it is just a universal experience of being a child. Like if a child is not pushing boundaries, they're not learning and growing or maturing. Um, The, we have our resource blog on our website 
And the one phenomenon that I think is the most important to learn about when discussing boundaries is what I call slot machine brain, where a child is just pulling the lever and seeing what happens. And it's not personal. And it's as addictive as an adult using a casino and gambling. Like the same thing that makes slot machines successful in casinos is the exact same thing that makes a child want to roll the dice, pull the lever over and over and over again, because this time it might be different. But if that slot machine was the same every single time, we'd get bored pretty quickly and stop pulling the lever. Wow, that's a good analogy. I love that. That was a perfect way to package it up. Okay, tell people where they can find find you. Where can they connect with you? Yeah, connect with us on Instagram. Our handle is at the connected child, but it's with dashes. Yeah, dashes. And our website is at the connected child with dashes. Also with dashes. Okay. Um, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be here and uh, teaching us and helping us learn more about boundaries and authentic relationships. Um, I appreciate the work that you're doing with children. So thank you for being here. Likewise. Thank Thank you so so much. If you liked what you heard today, share this podcast with your coworkers, admin, or maybe even your partner. And I love getting five-star reviews so more people can embrace play. Hit follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. Or connect with me on Instagram or my website, kristenrbpeterson.com. Until next time. Bye.